Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to this first Sunday of our new year. We also have a new sermon series starting today. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. I want to welcome you to this church on this first Sunday of the new year. Our new sermon series is titled Fixed and Free. Maybe you're intrigued by those words. Hopefully by the end of today's message, they will make a little bit more sense to you. We'll be talking about being fixed and free as United Methodists for the next five weeks in worship. We're talking about this in part because looking forward to next year, in February of 2019, our denomination may begin to look a little different. Like many denominations in America for the last 40 years or so, we have been engaged in a rigorous debate over issues of marriage and ordination as they relate to gay people. And we have gotten to a point that we realized two years ago that debating these issues at our quadrennium gathering called General Conference simply was not working. So we asked a group uh, put together by the bishops council to gather for two years and put together a plan for a way forward for our denomination. You may have seen headlines of other denominations splitting over these issues. United Methodists so far have not. That doesn't mean that we are far from the tension. We're right inside of the tension today. And in a year's time, we will have a specially called general conference where our delegates will debate again and vote on these plans for a way forward put forward by the Bishop's Commission. All that's to say... There's something coming, and we're not sure what it looks like, which means that it's a little bit scary to face. Nobody likes change, especially changes that we don't really know. Amen? And the natural thing for us to do is to stick our heads in sand like ostriches, especially in the church, where changes happen slowly and over the course of centuries. But at Lover's Lane, we want to lead the way in starting conversations around what is going to happen, because something is going to happen next year. Um, maybe our policies change, maybe our systems change, maybe nothing changes, maybe some people begin to splinter away, or maybe a combination of those things. We simply don't know. But it's better for us to be leading these conversations now than to be surprised next year in February. Amen? And Lover's Lane is a church that has managed to uh, grow in diversity. I bet if we pulled the room, all of us disagree about this, that, or the other. Amen? I've got the emails to prove it. Don't lie to me. <laughs> but we've stayed united as a congregation, a diverse congregation, because we rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, and we believe that everyone is worth loving into relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? This is a conversation we think that not just we should be having, but our larger denomination should be. So some of our pastors, including Stan and Donna Whitehead and myself and my wife Reagan, we've participated in a group called Uniting Methodists. And they hope to speak for unity and for bridging the gap in this debate. And they've put together vision and mission statements around these words called fixed and free. Today I want to unpack what this means what it means for us as United Methodists. To start, I want to talk about a trip I took to Mississippi recently. Do I have any Mississippians in the room this morning? Raise your hand nice and proud. There we are. Yes. Go dogs. Hail State. There we go. Uh, I was in Mississippi visiting my grandparents in Hattiesburg. My aunt and uncle live there as well. 
and all of my mom's siblings, both her sister and brother and their families and their children, and then all of my cousin's children, four generations of people were gathered together in one space for almost a week, and it was magical. Uh, we got to share stories and, and laugh and play games. We got to spend really special time together. I got to talk to my Uncle Doug, who lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And Uncle Doug got a special Christmas gift this Christmas. He is about to retire in the next couple of years, and he's always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Anyone else? <laughs> he's always wanted to learn how to play the guitar, and he has a friend who builds custom guitars for fun, and his friend gave him a custom-built guitar for Christmas with a powder blue coat finish and these red casino dice for the knobs. Now, I don't have a guitar with me. I've got a ukulele this morning because it's easier to lug around the church. But it's the same idea. Maybe you've never played guitar before, never tried to learn. I talked to my Uncle Doug about what it was like learning to play the guitar, and he said it was difficult. I asked him why. I thought maybe he would say it's because of all the weird shapes your hand has to make to make the right chords of music. But what he told me was it was hard because his fingers hurt. (laughs) If you've ever tried to learn to play guitar, you know what he's talking about. The strings on the guitar, they hurt when you press them down tight so you can make a chord. They hurt because they are held in very high tension. On one end of a guitar, or a ukulele, you've got what's called a bridge. The strings are attached here, and this is the anchor point. The strings don't move from this place. And then they are strung across the length of the guitar, and they're wound around these little tuning knobs. Now, these things can move and twist and turn, and they can pull the string tighter or let it go looser to get the perfect note. And when the tension is just right, what you get is music. But it hurts to press those strings because the tension is so high. You know, when we say the word tension, I think a lot of times we think that is a negative word. We say when you walk into the room, you could cut the tension with a knife. Is that a good thing? (laughs) Tension, we think, is this negative thing, but in a guitar or in a ukulele, tension is a beautiful thing. It can be painful, yes, especially when you're first learning it, but after a while, what you get, that's not so pretty, but you get some nice music in between, (laughs) especially once you've learned a couple chords. I think the church finds itself in tension. I think the biggest thing we're wrestling with these days has nothing to do with debates over ordination or marriage. I think the real issue we've got is we've got to decide whether or not we want to live in tension. Because on one side of the church, we've got a very fixed position. It doesn't move. Eternal truths. A God who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And on the other side, we've got this freely moving position The spirit of a God who meets us in places we don't expect, who leads us to people we wouldn't expect, who calls us to be a church that we couldn't even imagine, and who has grace abounding for everyone. And somewhere in between, you and I get to play and make music. Now here's the thing, I could release the tension, couldn't I? I could take a pair of scissors or a knife and cut the strings, and both sides of the guitar could go their separate ways. No more pain, no more tension, no more music. Is that really what we want? Today, let's talk about tensions. Let's talk about a God who is both fixed and free. 
And to help us talk about this, I want us to look at two specific passages of Scripture. It's still Christmas time, you know, liturgically. You didn't put up your lights or your Christmas tree yet, did you? You're in trouble if you did. It's still Christmas. Today we're going to look at two very classic Christmas Scriptures. One from the very Christmassy book of Exodus, and the other from the even more Christmassy book of 1 Kings. Aren't you excited? You might be wondering why in the world we're reading these scriptures today. Well, these scriptures have a lot in common. They're both about the Israelites. They both feature God instructing them to build this space, this building of sorts. But they're also very different. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites have just left the land of Egypt. They're now wandering in the wilderness for 40 years knowing that one day they'll reach a promised land, but honestly, there's doubts they'll ever get there. They're homeless. They don't know where they are or where they're going. And God meets them in that place and gives them the gift of a structure to be called a tabernacle. And then in the book of 1 Kings, the Israelites are a very different people. Now they're in the promised land. They're beginning to lay their roots, and they want to become a nation able to negotiate and talk with the likes of Syria and Babylon and Egypt. And for that, they need an identity. They need a home. They need to have something firm and stable and steadfast. And so God tells them to build a temple. What we'll find is that these two structures are very different, but there's something that is similar in both. There's a common thread that God weaves in both these structures, different as they may be. With all of this in mind, let's read our first scripture this morning, found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to take for me an offering. From all whose hearts prompt them to give, you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastpiece. And have them make me a sanctuary, he says, so that I may dwell among them. In accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then we move forward into 1 Kings. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 11. This time God speaks to Solomon. It says, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. These are two very different buildings. Tabernacle is like a tent literally made of cloth that flows, it moves, it can be picked up at a moment's notice. It's perfect for a people without a home. 
But a temple, a temple is something different. A temple is stone. A temple is foundation. A temple is unmoving and unchanging. A temple is home. But did you notice the common thread in both these structures? Did you hear it? Did you hear the word that came up twice? God says these structures are important not because of gems, not because of ram's fur, not because of ordinances or statutes. They're important. Why? Because I will dwell with my children here. The dwelling of God is the important, the most important part of these structures. Not the stones, not the commandments, the dwelling of God. That's why they're being built. Whether God's spirit is where it's always been, like the temple in Jerusalem, or whether God's spirit is on the move like the tabernacle in the wilderness, God is always dwelling with God's children. Now that sounds nice, but if we really think about that, this presents a God that's kind of intention. How can God be a God on the move, a God who is free-spirited, a God without a home, a God who is everywhere at once, and also a God who is steadfast and solid and foundational and unmoving and unchanging and exactly where you left him in the temple. How can God be both things at once? Is this not impossible? And honestly, if I were to ask you, doesn't one of those just sound better than the other? I don't know which one does for you, but I bet most of us would say we'd rather worship the God of the tabernacle or the God of the temple on any given day of the week. Because they just don't sound like they go together all that much. I want us to stop for a moment and consider what it would look like if God was only in the tabernacle or if God was only in the temple and how much we would lose if that was true. The God of the tabernacle. It's God at God's most free. God is not stuck. God is moving, God is with us, God is in the wilderness, God is in the fringes, God is wherever we need God to be. The word tabernacle comes from the Latin word tabernaculum, which means tent. It's this fabric-y building that is like a tent that you camp with. It's not permanent, it's designed to be moved quickly. This is what the Israelites needed God to be because they couldn't stay put in the desert. The desert is no place to build a home. And so God's spirit is free to move with God's people. There's no specific spot that God calls home. God is wherever God's people are. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching about the one lost sheep. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I love this story. Jesus tells his followers there's a shepherd. God's like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. And 99 of them are safe in the pen. I don't know about you, did you ever get a 99 on a final test? That felt pretty good, didn't it? Were you really concerned about that one point? I wasn't, no, I slept easy that night. But God looks at the 99 sheep and says, I'm not satisfied. The shepherd says, where'd the one go? Where'd that one sheep run off to? The shepherd scours the countryside, goes all over the wilderness to find this one lost sheep. And then what does he do? Picks him up and he carries him home. Because 99 is not enough for the God of the tabernacle. 
The God of the tabernacle, the God who is free, will go to any reaches that we can go to, will meet us at the highest of our highs and the lowest of our lows, will meet us in the depths of our human experience. Have you ever needed a God who relentlessly pursued you no matter where you were? Do you need a God like that in your life? I do. There are plenty of times that I am a beautiful little sheep running all over the countryside clueless as to where God is, and thank goodness God finds me. Because I don't think I'd ever find my way home. This is the God of the tabernacle, and it sounds pretty good. Some of you might be saying, hey, Scott, I'm good with the tabernacle. I like this image of God. But if that's our only image of God, what do we lose? To illustrate this, I want to talk about my daughter, Andy. I've got a, she's almost two. She acts like she's 40. She's got a personality through the roof, and her favorite thing in the world to eat is potato chips, or she calls them bips, because she's adorable, and I love her. And when I'm eating potato chips, she'll come up to me and say, dada, bippies. I mean, how do you say no to that? But of course, I know her game. I know she's probably had some bips that day. So I say, Andy, go ask your mother if you can have some more chips. <laughs> I, do, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. It's a fun game we play. So she goes, goes into the master bedroom. I don't hear anything. Then I hear her pitter-patter back down the hallway. Dada, bit peace. I said, Andy, did mama say you could have a chip? Really? So we go walking down. I say, Reagan, did you tell Andy she could have a chip? She goes, no, I didn't even see her in here. What are you talking about? And I look at Andy. I said, Andy. And she goes, sorry, dad, dad, bit peas. Have you ever had a relationship with God that's kind of like the relationship my daughter has with my wife, or whatever it is that you have in your brain, suddenly God seems to have that on his heart too. Have you ever had a difficult decision to make and you thought you knew what to do and you said, you know what, I'm going to pray about this? And you go and you pray. And wouldn't you know that God says you're 100% right all the time? Has God ever told you you're 100% right all the time? Doesn't that feel good? Do the God of the universe thinks you're a genius? Oh, it feels so good. But that's not the Christian God that we believe in, is it? How many times have I turned to God in what I think is a moment of prayer, and it's really just a moment of self-reflection, and I'm going to God saying, bip, peace. God said I could have a bip. Great. When reality is if I actually went to God in prayer, he might tell me something I don't want to hear, like you're wrong or you need to rethink this or you need to turn around. If we only see God as God of the tabernacle, if we only see God as always with us, always by our side, always where we are, at a certain point are we not simply celebrating our own human will? If our faith in God never challenges us to think, act, or believe differently, do we really have the faith that we think we do? The one lost sheep, 
when the shepherd goes out and finds the sheep, he doesn't say, great, I'll set up camp here. What does he do? He brings them back into the fold. We don't get to simply say, well, you know what, God's free. God's wherever I am and God follows me and so whatever I say, God says, and isn't that great? That's not a faith worth having. It's a half of a faith, but it's not a faith worth having. God is free, but God is not only free. God is also fixed. And we see this clearly in the temple that Solomon builds. Think about a temple versus a tabernacle. Stone. Stone pillars, marble, gold, metal, things that are not going to move. In fact, we've got some people associated with our church. Uh, some, we've got one young woman named Carrie Lynn Lucas who is uh, a staff member here and another man named Randall who's going to be an intern next year. And they're in Israel with Perkins School of Theology uh, at SMU on a, on a trip. I got to take the same trip a few years ago, so I was watching them post pictures, and it, all of a sudden these memories come flooding back, and they were posting pictures of the Western Wall. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Western Wall, it's, it, you've seen it in photos before probably, where uh, Jewish people around the world will come to this wall. It's, it's the side of the Temple Mount, where the temple that we're reading about in the Bible used to stand, and the temple after it used to stand, and now there's a, there's a mosque there that stands. And I mean, this is the holiest of holy places in the world. I mean, this, this is a place where you go in and, you're, and you get goosebumps on your arms because something special is happening there. Because you're walking up to stones that faithful people have walked up to for thousands of years. Let that sink in, America. Thousands of years. Faithful people have touched and kissed and prayed with these stones. God is steadfast. God is like a rock that doesn't move. God is that home that you know where it is. God is kind of like the story of the prodigal son. Another story that, that Jesus tells his followers. He says there is a man with two sons. The youngest son... He's a little cocky. He gets mad at his dad one day and says, I want my inheritance now, not when you die. Give it to me now. Saying, I, I wish you were dead, basically, dad. The father being a gracious and generous dad, he gives him his inheritance. And what does the son do? He goes off and parties it up and squanders it away. He ends up working for a pig farmer, living in a pigsty, eating pig slop. The lowest of the lowest of the low in Jewish culture. And one day he wakes up and he sees himself covered in slop and he sees what his life has become and he says, I gotta go home. So he walks back to his childhood home and as he's walking towards the gates, his father sees him and what does his dad do? He hikes up his skirt and he runs out. He gives him the biggest bear hug he's ever gotten. He says, come on in, son. Come in. Let me set you a place at the table. We're going to throw a party tonight. Come sit down. It's a beautiful story of what happens when we turn back to where we know God is. We go back to home, just like Jewish people going back to the Western Wall or people on a pilgrimage going back to some faithful stones. Sometimes there are places in our life where we know if we turn back and we go to those places, we'll find God there. Amen? Is there a place like that for you in your life? Maybe it's a, it's a family home. Maybe it's a coffee shop. Maybe it's this sanctuary. But there's a place that you know if you can just get there, God will be there. 
and you'll get the goosebumps again, and you'll know that you're home. And I love that story. I love that aspect of God, but I can't think of that story without thinking of the older brother. Oh, the older brother who stands there as the party's going on, being a party pooper. And he sees his father pull up a spot for his brother. He won't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours. He sees his brother is so sinful, so irredeemably sinful, that he can't imagine why his dad would grace him with a seat at the table. And why does he feel this way? Because he's kept the commandments. He stayed by his father's side. He worked the family farm. He did everything he was supposed to do. When the temple's being built, what does God ask for? He says, keep my statutes, keep my commandments. The older brother says, I did those things. And he didn't do any of it. So why are we throwing him a party? Here's the problem with only believing in a God of the temple. It's that yes, God is steadfast. Yes, God is fixed. Yes, God is the same God yesterday and today and tomorrow. Yes, God is eternal and true. But the temple comes with statutes and commandments. And when we make our faith all about statutes and commandments... None of us will ever measure up. And the table can never be small enough. Don't tell me there's not someone in your life that when you die and go up to the big pearly gates and you're standing there next to God and you see them walking up, you're thinking, you better not run out there and hug them. (laughs) Don't tell me I'm wrong, church. We're going to be honest this morning. Put yourself there. Who's walking up and God's running out giving them a hug and you're saying, darn it, oh, This is the worst. He's probably going to make me sit next to them. The table will never be small enough if we only worship the God of statutes and commandments in the temple. So what are we left with? As United Methodists, what are we going to do? Are we going to believe in a God of a tabernacle, a God who is free, a God who moves, a God who is on the fringes, a God who's without limits, a God who reaches people that we don't even like, people that we don't even know, people that we can't even imagine, a God who's going to pour grace and mercy and love down upon every single human soul in this world? Or are we going to believe in a God who is fixed and steadfast and true today and yesterday and tomorrow, a God of the Bible, a God of our history, a God of promises and covenants? Which one? Why not both? We're so close. We're so close to cutting the strings and losing this tension because we say it's too painful. We can't do this anymore. And so some of us will go this way. And some of us will go this way. And in the middle, there will be no tension and no pain and no music anymore. Is that the kind of faith that we want Is that a gospel that the world needs to hear? Is that a gospel that will transform the world in which we live? Or is a gospel that uplifts both a God who is free and a God who is fixed? A gospel who says God knows where to find me and I can find God. A God who is so sold out to love and grace and redemption that he will scour the depths of the earth and the ends of the earth and will also stay right where he's been so we know where to find him. Is that not a God worth praising and worshiping and proclaiming? Is that not a God worth living in some tension for? 
We're making music, church. But it hurts so much that we're about ready to quit. As United Methodists, can we uplift an identity that proclaims boldly the essential fixed truths of our Christian faith, yet also listens intently for the Spirit's free movements in this world? Can we trust in our brothers and sisters to live in the tension with us and to know that sometimes we're simply going to disagree and God is still there? I believe United Methodists have a unique opportunity right now to speak loudly and clearly that the divisions that have taken root in our country and throughout our world will not take root in our church that we will find a way forward where everyone can follow the God of the tabernacle and the temple together. And though we may disagree, what we are united in is the good news of a savior named Jesus Christ who came to this world in the form of a baby, who lives now during this Christmas season, who we proclaim to a world in desperate need of redemption in every place that God's tabernacle and temple can go. And we call them home to a father who loves them to a son who redeems them and a Holy Spirit that uplifts them so that we might transform the world. Amen.